Welcome to This Week in Engineering. I'm Jim Anderton, Multimedia Content Director at Engineering.com. On today's episode, Europe gets serious about tech, Hyundai doubles down on fuel cells, and SpaceX lands, then burns. Today's episode of This Week in Engineering is brought to you by Engineering.com, a globally trusted source for engineering content. Check out this and many other exclusive videos for the engineering professional found only on Engineering.tv today. Well, the team at SpaceX, they've been busy again this week, launching the 10th iteration of the firm's large Starship vehicle from their launch site in Cameron County, Texas. The previous SN9 vehicle suffered an engine failure and explosion, and SN10 was planned for a similar flight profile. The plan was to ascend on the vehicle's three Raptor engines, with each shutting down in sequence ahead of the projected peak altitude of 10 kilometers. Now, like SN9, the vehicle then was programmed to turn on its side, simulating an orbital re-entry, transfer propellant feed to internal header tank, then relight engines for a soft landing on the pad. Controls by autopilot through engine gimbling and four winged fins that SpaceX calls flaps. The flight profile was executed according to plan, with the single-engine Raptor-powered landing on target, however with sufficient force to damage the vehicle. SN10 was destroyed some minutes after landing by a pad fire. Now, SpaceX calls these events rapid, unscheduled disassembly, and undeterred, the firm has already rolled out SN11 to the pad for pre-launch testing. Now, rolling out prototype vehicles for flight tests with only days for post-flight analysis of a catastrophic failure, that's very rare in the aerospace industry. In booster development, it was seen last in the 1950s in the General Dynamics Atlas program, where speed was of the essence to develop an ICBM to counter the Soviet R7 Samyorka, and Pentagon budgets were essentially unlimited. Even under those conditions, General Dynamics astronautics faced the possible cancellation of their program due to numerous failures. SpaceX is developing Starship with private funding, and Elon Musk appears undeterred by the expensive build, break, develop engineering strategy. In the meantime, however, Falcon 9 successes have become almost commonplace, with another launch and successful booster recovery this week, delivering 60 Starlink internet satellites into low Earth orbit. Why build Starship? The current test vehicles are prototypes of the upper stage of a much larger system, which is planned for heavy lift to low-Earth orbit, as well as for human spaceflight. A lunar Starship mission is planned for 2023, carrying Japanese entrepreneur Yusaku Mezawa and a crew of civilian passengers on a week-long flyby of the Moon. Definitely not the NASA way of doing things. With a large number of firms entering the electric vehicle space, new models will be arriving every month. But whatever happened to fuel cells? Well, Toyota and several other automakers continue to pursue fuel cell technology as an alternative non-fossil fuel propulsion system for cars and trucks. Now, one of them is Hyundai, who have broken ground on their first foreign fuel system factory in Guangzhou province in China. Now, the R&D and production facility will cover over 2 million square feet and be used for both cell production and research. The facility, called H2 Guangzhou, will be completed by the second half of 2020 and will initially produce 6,500 fuel cell systems per year. Hyundai plans to ramp production from that level as market demand increases. The new plant is part of an ambitious 2018 plan called Fuel Cell Vision 2030, with a targeted production by that year of 700,000 units annually. The H2 brand will focus on Korea, Europe, China, and the US, offering an SUV, the Hyundai Nexo, the Exeunt heavy-duty truck, and a fuel cell bus. As a clean energy technology, it's an arms race between pure EV players who are banking on advanced battery technology and lower costs, combined with large infrastructure plans for charging stations, versus the fuel cell community, who face a similar infrastructure gap in filling stations, plus the need to supply gaseous hydrogen. Can they both coexist? There are applications where the lighter weight of hydrogen fuel cells may be advantageous, and as a transition technology, hydrogen can be extracted from natural gas on a commercial scale. 
From an environmental perspective, much depends on how that hydrogen is manufactured and how overall energy and environmental costs of battery manufacturing are calculated. At this point, there's no clear winner from an environmental perspective. From the showroom floor, EVs are ahead for now, but we'll be watching fuel cell developments closely. There's no doubt that the future is digital, and as China and the US vie for supremacy in the digital space, there's a new player at the table, Europe. The European Council has released a plan for a continental digital strategy called the Digital Compass. The strategy is to rapidly increase the penetration of high-tech hardware and software across all European states with surprising speed by 2030. There are four key targets. The first is education. 80% of all adults will have basic digital skills and 20 million will be employed as leading-edge IT specialists in the EU, with the program to promote women in the field as well. The second is massive in scope. All EU households with gigabit connectivity and all populated areas covered by 5G. On the hardware side, 20% of global semiconductor production is to be based in Europe, with 10,000 climate-neutral secure edge nodes in the EU, as well as Europe's first quantum computer. The third target is corporate Europe. By 2030, three to four companies will be using cloud computing services, big data, and AI. 90% of SMEs will reach a basic level of what the plan calls digital intensity, and the final target is digitalization of all public services. According to the plan, by 2030, all key public services will be available online, all citizens will have access to medical records using e-systems, and 80% of citizens will use at least one electronic ID system. The project is breathtaking in scope, but it will require major member funding to achieve. A recovery and resilience facility is already in place amongst member nations for seed money, and the plan requires countries to commit to investing at least 20% of that funding toward those digital goals. Now, it's a tall order, and while the plan doesn't state who will supply hardware or software solutions to achieve it, the 20% semiconductor market penetration will likely require domestic sourcing for European solutions. Are we headed toward a tripolar, siloed digital world? We'll be watching. This episode was brought to you by engineering.tv. Thanks for listening. Tune in again next time.